This weekend, we're continuing in a series called Open Handed, The Freedom of Living Generously. The whole idea behind this series this month is that God uh, has shown us in his word there's really two ways to live when it comes to our stuff, our possessions, our finances. One way, and a lot of the world lives this way, is closed-fisted, closed-handed. It's the position and posture of an owner, which says, I have stuff and it's mine. Everything I have belongs to me, and I do with it what I want. And I only open my hand and contribute or give or be generous when I'm good and ready and feel like it. The Bible makes it clear throughout the stories of Scripture and the teaching of Jesus that the harder and tighter we grip to the things that we think we, that we own, the reality is we don't have freedom in that. We become enslaved to our things, to the things around us, the things that we think are ours. And so God calls us to a whole other way of being open-handed, recognizing that everything belongs to God, everything comes from God, and everything is dispersed by God. And as I mentioned last weekend, as we kicked off this series, I'll just say it again. I understand the suspicion that's within our culture when someone like me, a preacher, gets up and says, we're going to talk about money because there's all sorts of stories out in the culture that say, you know what, we don't want to hear churches talk about money. But the reality is what we want to be doing as leadership and as a church over this next number of weeks is simply pressing into God's perspective on money, stuff, and possessions. And like I said, there is no bait and switch here. There's not some capital campaign that's coming that we're going to be launching on you. We're not even struggling financially as a church. Thank God for that and for your faithfulness. This is simply what I sensed and Chris with me sensed that this was a season to specifically step into God's word and find freedom in the way of Jesus in relationship to our possessions. And that's what we're going to continue with here this weekend. Last weekend, we had this challenge. Uh, For those of you who were here, nine people over the weekend stood up here open-handed and had some resources placed in their hand. And I'm already starting to hear some testimonies of of what God has said to do with his resources. Some others of you who didn't come up and volunteer uh, have also participated in that and hearing some stories, amazing stories of responsiveness to God with his money to bless people and bless and bless God. So there's going to be more of that hopefully coming in the weeks ahead. Can't wait for you to hear those stories. You know, I think one of the most amazing moments in the development of a human being is when he or she utters their very first words. Parents wait for that moment often with this bated breath. When are they going to say it? And they try really hard to accelerate, which sometimes they regret later on. Why did I make this child speak so early on? But initially, they try really hard to accelerate the speaking in a child. I know of moms and dads who spend hours coaching their kids to make sure that the first word is mama or dada, depending on the gender of the parent, right? That always seemed kind of silly to me. So I've never made a big deal out of the fact that all of my kids' first word was dada. I just don't make a big deal of that, just how it was. You know, but soon after they say, you know, dada or mama, children learn the next word, which is the word no. Now, psychologists apparently tell us this is a very, very important word. No. They say it helps the child set boundaries and assert their own sense of identity and autonomy. Psychologists say that this is a very good stage, this no stage. Although most psychologists who say this have never had kids of their own. I just want to acknowledge that's probably the truth. But it always happens. Mama, dada, no. And then right around this time, kids pick up another word that they use a lot When someone else wants to play with one of their toys, when someone tries to wear something of theirs, when someone might want to taste some of their food, they say this word and it becomes their big, most favorite word. And the word, of course, is mine. 
My to- you guys know this. You're a brilliant congregation. My toys, my stuff, my room, my food, mine. You know, there are some people, they go to their grave and it's still their favorite word their whole lives. They might not say it out loud much, but it really comes to mark their life. The word mine, you find it on their wallet, on their bank account. It's on their house. It's on their car. It's on their time. It's on their life. Mine. And ultimately, this is just the truth about us human beings. The day is going to come when for one final time, you will say one of two words to God from the core of your being, as will I. Either we will stand before God and say to him, yours, God, everything I've had, everything I am, everything I have is yours. Or we will say to God, mine. I give you nothing. I submit nothing. It's mine. The day will come when every human being will say to God one of two words. Yours, yours, God, it's all yours, or mine. Two very important words. And every, and every one of us, one day, stand, we'll stand before God and say one or the other. You know, this weekend, we're going to be looking at some important moments in the life of a man named David, as recorded for us in the Bible. David, although imperfect, seemed to grasp the whole truth that everything, yours. God, it's yours. And we're going to get a glimpse into the kind of heart that says the word yours to God, not just at the end of life, but all the way through it and the impact that has. Like I said, David was flawed and made some bad decisions through his life. But I'll tell you one thing that I think David got right. I think David had a generous heart. David loved to give and he loved to share. And here's why I think it's so important. I think so many Christians, so many followers of Jesus get defeated in this area of generosity in our Christian lives. I think a lot of people in churches wonder, you know, what does the Bible really teach us about possessions and materialism and so on? And am I supposed to give away everything I have? Am I just supposed to live with nothing? Or should I feel guilty about enjoying anything or having anything? There's a whole bunch of misunderstandings about this. And I think a lot of people, we end up just giving up on the whole idea of walking biblically and walking in a Christ-like manner with our stuff. My personal opinion is that when the Apostle Paul later on in the New Testament says, you know, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. I think in our day, there is no area of life where Christians get squeezed into the world's mold more than in this area of material possessions and finances. And that's not what God wants for us. He has something so good for us. And I think David has something to teach us about this. Like many in our society, more than most of us, really, David was entrusted with much in the way of material possessions and wealth. And yet he wasn't called to give all that stuff away, but also somehow all that stuff didn't get a hold on his heart. It didn't own him. And he developed one of the most generous hearts that we see in all of Scripture. So I think he can be a model for us, a very important one, to help us get clarity on this question. What does a truly generous heart look like? What does a generous heart look like? What does an authentically Christ-honoring, generous heart look like? How do I know if I'm growing as a Christ follower in the area of stewardship? I think David has a lot to teach us, and there's so many stories of his generosity. We looked at one story last weekend as he set out to finance the building of the temple. Today we're going to look at two more indicators of a generous heart from the life of David. We're going to walk through a number of passages in Scripture today. I invite you to take out your Bible. The Scriptures are also going to be coming up on the screen behind me. You can follow along that way. But if you have a Bible, would you turn to 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 30. 
We're going to start in verse 9. If you're new to the Bible and you've never held one, maybe you can slide over next to somebody and ask them to share with you. We're going to see how generous people are in the room today with their space. Uh, but First Samuel chapter 30, if you need help finding it, just go to the table of contents. Find the words First Samuel. You go there. It'll be chapter 1. You just flip forward a little bit to the big, bold number 30. And down to the small numbers, those are the verses. First Samuel 30, verse 9. Again, we're going to focus on two episodes in David's life as indicators. What do we look for to know for me, for you? Are we growing? Is the trajectory of our spiritual life toward generosity and living out of a generous heart and being free in Christ to be who he wants us to be? Or is the indicators and trajectory of my heart towards being closed fisted, shut off to the needs around me and to the movements of God? And we're going to just get an assessment on that here this morning. So first one is this, I believe a generous heart is motivated by the needs of others. You know, one way to know if your heart is developing in generosity is you'll find yourself more moved more by the needs of people in need around you than moved by your own sense of discontent. Your discontent can be a powerful motivator. You know, I have to acquire stuff, I have to get stuff. And so my whole life can be motivated by acquiring more. But I think a truly generous heart isn't really motivated by my lack of what I think I need. A truly generous heart, biblically, is motivated by the needs of those around you. That's the motivation. This is a classic example of David doing that. You see, the Bible tells us that David, while he was moving about the countryside, has a little community of people gather around him. The Bible describes these people as a group who were in debt, in distress, and discontented. Just sounds like a real fun group to hang out with. That was David's crew. That's who he's moving around with. And this group, by the time we come to this part of the text, had established a village. It was really a refugee village for all these people who were gathering around David. And this refugee village was called Ziklag. The Bible tells us that they would go out from Ziklag, David and his men, to the surrounding area to gather food and get things so that they could survive. And so they go and raid this Philistine outpost from Ziklag. David and his men, they go off, they leave the wives and children home, and they go off to go get food and supplies so they can live. While they're away from the village, you've got to get the picture. David and his, his men are in Ziklag with their families. They go to raid this Philistine town. They have another enemy called the Amalekites. The Amalekites, knowing that all the warriors have left, come in, sweep through Ziklag, pick everything up, women, children, wives, stuff, pick it up and carry it off. They go off with it. David and his men, they come back from this, this raid with some more provisions for their village. They come back and here they stand at the edge of their village in Ziklag and everything and everyone is gone. Now the men, they look at David and they say, our lives have been completely destroyed and it's your fault, David. And there was a group of people that, in David's company that started to say, you know what we have to do? We have to kill David. We're going to stone him. We're going to put him there, throw stones at him until he's dead. They're ready to stone him. But David prays and God says, you know what, David, I want you to go after the Amalekites who have taken away your wives and your children and all your stuff. Go after the Amalekites who have destroyed your village and take everything back. And here's what happens. His men are ready to stone him. David's ready to get stoned. They come back from this long campaign against the Philistines. They're fatigued and demoralized by the loss of their home. But David rallies them. Now, here's, the, here's where we come into the verse. Look at verse 9. It says, David and 600 men with him came to the Bezor Ravine. That means they're going after the Amalekites now, where some stayed behind. 
200 men, pay attention to these guys, 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. 600 set out, 200 are too tired to go any further, 400 go on. So what's going on is David has rallied the men. He's like, we're going to do this together. It's okay. And leads them on this forced march south. And they pushed really hard for about 15 miles on foot. And they come to this ravine. It's this dried creek bed, the Bizarre Ravine. And about a third of the men say, we can't go another step. We are already wiped out. We were wiped out when we got home from the raid of the Philistines and found our village destroyed. And now after this further march, we don't have it in us. We haven't got the strength. We haven't got the spirit. We're just done. And so David says, it's okay. You stay here with the supplies. And now remember these men, these 200 that stay back. We're going to come back to them. Then in verse 11 and following, these 400 men press on and they stumble. As they go, they're trying to find the Amalekites out in the wilderness. They come across a man laying almost dead in the desert. It's an Egyptian man. The man was exhausted and starving. He'd been left there by his master to die. He'd been in the desert for three days, three nights, no food, no water. He would have been so close to death, on death's door. He was obviously too much trouble for his employer, for his owner. So certainly this man couldn't expect much from a stranger. But David, even though he's on this pursuit, even though he has a goal in mind, when David has sees this stranger lying almost dead in the desert, David has this generous heart that comes out on this Egyptian man who's almost dead. And David simply says to the man, not knowing who he is, just says, what's mine is yours. And he gives him water and some food to sustain him and strengthen him and cares for this man. Well, the man turns out to be one of the servants of the Amalekites who had wiped out David's village and carried off their possessions and their families. David simply just extends generosity to a stranger. It turns out that this man knows exactly where the Amalekites are. And so David says to this Egyptian man, the Amalekites have taken our families. Will you lead us to them? And of course, the man had been left to die by the Amalekites and David saves his life. So this man... Only too happy to do that. I'll show you right where they are. Verse 16. This man led David down, and there they were, the Amalekites, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. They'd plundered a whole area, including Ziklag. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. Verse 19. Nothing was missing. Young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else that they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock saying, this is David's plunder. That sounds like the end of the story, but it's not. Remember those 200 guys that stayed behind at the Bizarre Ravine who were too tired to go anywhere? Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at the Bizarre Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. Imagine their response. They see David coming back. Their wives, their children are there, their possessions. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, that's among the 400, said, because they did not go with us, we will not share with them the plunder we have recovered. However, we'll be gracious. Each man can take his own wife and children and go. Get out of here. These men that the text calls troublemakers say, you know what, it's not fair. We did the work. These guys stayed behind. They're slackers. And I mean, if, we, if they get a share, it means I get less. So we're keeping the plunder to ourselves. 
They took it. They look at the 200 men who were exhausted, had nothing left to give and stayed behind. And they see undeserving parasites who will do nothing but eat into their profits. So they say, no way. We're not giving any. If I give you, it means I have less. And that's kind of the way the world works. Generally in the world, when we see people in need, the way the world works is to say that giving to them would threaten my own fulfillment and security about what I have. We live in a world that says the secret to fulfillment and security is more stuff for me and giving to other people means less stuff. So I'm not risking my security. Look what David does in verse 23. David replied, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what God has given us. With who who gave what? With God has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. I love this courage here. Who will listen to what you say? It's like an ancient way of saying, be quiet, shut your mouth. That's what he's saying. Who will listen to what you say? He says, listen to me. The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is, be, is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And David made this a statue, an ordinance, which means an unchangeable law for Israel from that day to this. He set it within the culture. It doesn't matter if you go out or stay back. We all share. We all get some. Now, I want you to notice in this text is the connection between David's gratitude to God and David's desire to be generous. He connects the two. David says to the man in the 400, you're thinking about stuff all wrong. You know, we were all once this group of discontented, indebted fugitives. That was all us. And now we have stuff. But we only have it because God was gracious and generous to us. That's the only reason. So how can we not be gracious and generous with others? Who put us on a higher pedestal from where we used to be? It's only God that brought us here. And here's the point. When David has a financial choice to make, he begins by thinking his first thought about how gracious and generous God has been to him. And then he asks, how can I be like that? If I have a financial decision to make, David says, I'm going to begin with a theology of stewardship that says everything I have belongs to God and everything comes from him and everything is dispersed by him. And this generous God who's lavished so much on us is the way I want to be. I want to reflect God's divinity in me by giving uh, generously as God has given to me. It starts with the foundation of a theology that says God is a giver and I want to be like that. I'll tell you, anytime we have a financial choice to make, If we start by thinking, if our first thought is a theological thought, by thinking about how gracious and generous God has been to us, it's hard not to want to be gracious and generous to others, regardless of what we think people deserve, because that's what a generous heart does. But our our world doesn't work that way. It really doesn't, a lot of the time. There's a Harvard economist read about this week. His name's James Duesenberry. He wrote after the Second World War, and he wrote this classic discussion about what drives North American financial behavior more than anything else. Like what really decides what we do with our finances. He was writing at a time when the world had been in flux through the Second World War. Soldiers had returned home. The economy was robust. There was this newfound wealth within Europe and North America as there was recovery efforts going on. And he just wanted to get down to to the heart. What's driving What's really the motive that drives North American financial behavior more than anything else? And it's a phrase that became famous. He's the one that came up with it. He said it all comes down to this. It's all about, you maybe heard this phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. 
You heard that phrase? Right? It's keeping up with the Joneses. He came up with it. He says, here's what drives financial decision making in North America at the time. And I think it's still true. We must have what we see and we have to have it now. I want what I want and I'd like it right now. If the Joneses get it, I've got to have it. And we will do crazy stuff. We'll kill ourselves to keep up and have it. To have our financial decisions driven by acquisition. To the point, we've all seen it. We end up working at jobs we don't like to make more money than we need, to buy things we can't use, to impress people we don't even know. And then it's not over. Because then the Joneses look at you and they refinance. What do you do when the Joneses refinance and up it again? Well, the only thing we do as Christ followers is we just decide not to play the game. You step out of relationship with the Joneses in one sense. Decide that I'm, not, I'm going to stop comparing myself to what other people have. I'm not going to allow this own internal sense of discontent drive my financial decisions. We decide as Christ followers that we're not going to acquire any more based on what the neighbors have or what co-workers have or their family members have or what advertisers say we need. We begin to practice a gratitude for what we have so that we're motivated more by others' needs than by personal discontent that can never be satisfied once you start down that path. One of the Rockefellers, again, historically, one of the wealthiest people in the world at the time when he was alive, was asked, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? He's the wealthiest man in the world. You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Wealthiest man in the world, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Ah, not quite there, just a little bit more. We start down the road of acquisition, of having our financial world decided by what we feel we need, motivated to get more, we start down a road that is destructive and it just doesn't end. And so God's call to us is, you know what, step out of the Joneses game. Just step out of it completely. And have your financial needs motivated by the generosity of God and the needs of others more than by any sense of personal discontent. You know, one of the ways you can know if you have a generous heart is you will find yourself increasingly motivated by the needs of others, over that chronic sense of discontent. And we just see that with David. Here's the second story. It's found in 2 Samuel 24. You can flip over there if you like to. 2 Samuel 24. The second facet of a generous heart that we see in this story is that generous hearts look for opportunities to give. Proactive. There's an intentionality to it. One of the ways, if we're going to step back and assess, is the trajectory of my heart towards generosity and freedom in Christ... Or is the trajectory the whole other way towards ownership and grasping? How do I know where my heart is? One of the ways you can know you're developing that generous heart is you find yourself looking for opportunities to give and not just opportunities to acquire. Second Samuel 24, starting in verse 18. The context is there's been this very destructive plague in Israel. And God stretches out his hand to stop the destruction. Jerusalem is saved. We pick this up in verse 18. On that day... God went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arunah looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to, my, come to his servant? To buy your flesh, threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take, do you hear this? 
Take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. And here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. And I love this next verse. But the king, that is David, replied to Aruna, no. David learned this word early in life and kept going with it. No, I insist on paying you for it. And here it is. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Isn't that tremendous? Isn't that amazing? Now on the surface, I first read this, this makes no sense at all. This makes no financial sense at all. Aruna is offering to give David stuff. And I mean, God's ending up with it all anyway, so what's the difference? What difference does it make who pays for it? But David says, I know God is going to end up with it anyway. I know it's all his. But this is a decision of my heart to honor God. And it will not come from my heart to God in the same way if it's just a freebie. If it costs me nothing. You see, when I give of my possessions, and that can be your time, your influence, your finances, anything. When I give, when I steward that, I'm giving a little part of myself and my heart changes. And every time I give, and every time I choose the way of generosity, it gets a little bit freer from the grip of stuff and my heart gets a little bit more devoted to God. I hold so tightly to God and so loose to everything else. And David says, that's the kind of heart I want. And so I'm going to pay. I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. I'm not in it for a freebie. I'm in it for a demonstration of generosity to keep the grip of greed off of my heart so I can stay close to God. And so David, even walking out his day-to-day life, is looking for opportunities to honor God by giving. Now this is so countercultural because our world is obsessed with opportunities to acquire. We live in a world that's obsessed with opportunities to acquire. But the sign of a generous heart has truly been touched by Jesus is that we begin to look for opportunities to give. We know stuff's coming in. We know finances, money, time, all this stuff's coming in. And instead of getting in this game of acquisition, we get into a life of looking for opportunities to give. You start looking for them. And they're just there all the time. They're there all the time. Here's the deal. When you give, when I give, we set in motion a spiritual dynamic that can't be held back. And amazing things start to happen. They happen to the one who receives the gift. They happen in the heart of the one who gives. They happen in the heart of those and people who are watching it happen. We can't give without setting that kind of spiritual dynamic in motion where the blessing of God starts to extend. It's like pebbles hitting the pond. We think that this gift, this thing that I'm going to give, is going to hit the, pe- hit the pond and have one ripple. And how God takes our gifts to glorify himself and bless others. And the ripples of giving start to spread in ways that we never imagined. And you know, when that kind of generosity, when the people of Jesus start to give out of this, out of this sense of I'm looking for opportunities to simply get more of God's resources into circulation for the kingdom, when this kind of generosity starts to, get, starts to kick in, in a real sense, the darkness gets rolled back. There's a little crack in the kingdom of fallenness when somebody gives and is generous because giving is at the core of the operational principles of the kingdom of God. It's at the core of who God is. And God just gives. He's a generous God. And generous hearts increasingly seek opportunities to give. And I'm telling you, these opportunities are all around us. We have opportunities all the time to give to your local church, to give to a local ministry that's helping the poor and the needy. To help an international work, to help an international worker, to sponsor a child. It's like a buffet in front of us 
of abilities to give and keep generosity moving and not have greed grip our hearts. But that's not only financial. I mean, we're primarily talking about finances this month, but there's so many other things that God has asked us to steward, to to be stewards relationally, to be stewards of our time. And I just think when the church, when the people of Jesus get motivated by the needs of those around us and then start looking for opportunities to give, you start to steward your time to invest relationally. God shows you that lonely person who needs a conversation. God shows you that person who just needs a meal and a place to sit and to share their heart. And so we open our home and a practical need gets met in someone's life. But God says, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to sit there with your eyes closed and your ears plugged and your heart shut off, waiting for me to jar you awake to the needs you can respond to. He says, my people are proactive givers, constantly looking for ways of response to get more of God's resources into circulation. And we respond when a need arises. And every time we open our hand, it breaks the bondage of greed and aligns us with the generous nature of God's heart. I mean, there are opportunities to give of yourself all around you. And this is the amazing truth of God's word and his promise to us. When we open ourselves to giving more, do you know you're never diminished? You know, giving doesn't diminish your heart. It doesn't put you in a place of lacking. God inspires in you a work of generosity that inspires other generosity. And you find yourself in places and seasons of provision that you could not have planned for yourself. Simply by opening, the hand, opening your hand and saying, God, whatever the need, however it needs to go, I'm going to respond and I'm going to be out looking for opportunities to give. You know, I get it. There's a reality that we talk about sometimes called compassion fatigue. There's just so many requests to give and oh man, there's another tragedy. There's another uh, disaster in the world. There's broken communities. God, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, oftentimes the response of Christ followers is just to shut it down. To go with a minimalist attitude and say, you know what, I just can't deal with all the darkness and brokenness, and so I'm going to shut down, I'm just going to give a minimum and pretend it's not happening. There can be this idea that there's this healthy response in that, that's protecting our hearts. But I want to tell you, we have to, as a church and as followers of Jesus, we have to confront prayerfully this whole compassion fatigue thing. What God doesn't want us to do is to shut ourselves off and isolate us And get isolated from the things and realities of our world. He's actually calling us deeper into it. When we start to feel that compassion fatigue and say, I'm so sick of being asked to give more. What God's asking us to do is not isolate, but get to the quiet place. And say, Jesus, what is motivating that sense of fatigue in me? And God, I want you to heal my heart and heal my mind and renew my thinking about how I can get more of your resources moving in the kingdom. I do not want to be held back. Simply because I'm feeling fatigued by something, God, would you strengthen me by your spirit? And it's in the quiet place where God speaks to you again about a perspective on resources and finances and stuff and possessions that renews the heart and grows our capacity, grows our ability to continue to be generous. Any move of the heart that starts to shut the heart down or close it off is not a move of God's spirit. It's a move of the flesh and of the enemy. Any move that expands the heart and increases our capacity to be involved in the things of the world generously, those are the moves of God's Spirit. I think one of the prayers we need to be praying is just those acknowledgments of Jesus. I acknowledge I don't have the capacity to respond in and of myself. And so would you widen, would you increase the capacity of my heart if I'm fatigued at this level? Instead of me shutting down, God, I'm asking you to expand the borders 
of my thinking, of my dreaming, of my giving. Increase my capacity to match your capacity, God, as the one who always gives. And then look for the opportunity again. And like we talked about last week, simply open our hands and say, God, I'm not going to make stuff happen. I'm not going to kick open doors. I'm simply asking with an open hand, God, how is it that you want me to help disperse your resources in ways that honor you? A generous heart always looks for opportunities to give. You know, for a variety of reasons our day, in our day, I've noticed it, just being around, this kind of phenomenon where churches get born and they grow fast for a generation and they flourish and they reach really well one generation. And that one generation got to hold stuff real tight. And when that generation dies out, the church dies out with it. Just see it again and again and again. Well, what if we said here, as followers of Jesus at Rexdale Alliance, we don't want to do that. We don't want to play that game. We want a different legacy than having one generation of significant impact. And I want to be part of a church that is built so that it is stronger in the next generation than it is in this one. How about that? So it's stronger for my daughters and for my sons than it is for me, and stronger for their children than it is for them, and stronger yet for some generation yet that I will never know, and none of us will ever know. I mean, what if those of us who have the ability now, what if we gave with such heart that we created a spirit of generosity that became the legacy to our sons and daughters and their sons and daughters and generations that come after us that we will never know? So that in a world where for centuries upon centuries human beings have been growing up and living their whole lives saying mine, that there is a community of human beings that get raised up who have learned to say to God and to the people God loves so much, yours. It's yours, God. And what the generations that come after us see is people living with such faith-filled passion for generosity, not for acquiring but for giving, that it sets within them a trajectory of their own lives that trusts in the provision of God, where we see ourselves as stewards, not owners, and it strengthens generation by generation, not a conviction about acquiring, but a conviction about giving, about generosity that sets our heart on a trajectory to the very heart of God. If we want our young people, our next generation, to be participating with us in the next miracles God has in store, it means we open our hands and say, God, we're trusting you with all of it. Take us on an adventure. Because if the gospel we preach simply is about getting the house paid off and retiring in comfort, it is not a story that the generation that's coming behind us is buying into. The gospel is bigger and greater and more miraculous than that. And the story we tell with how generous we are is the one that will build into the next generation a conviction about who God is and what he's like that will last for generation after generation, growing strength to strength to strength. And that is worth giving ourselves to. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. I want to take a moment again to pause and consider what it is that you're saying to your church today. What is it that you're saying to us, both here in the room and those joining us online? that we need to be paying particular attention to. Father, I sense that one thing you're asking us to do is to be the kind of people that actively seek out a practical need that we could meet, whether it's a financial need, a relational need, a spiritual need. Some of us, God, I think that you're going to put us in a position this week where what the person across from us needs is a word of prayer, a word of blessing. And we're going to have to take the time to really be present with somebody 
And we're going to feel like giving of our time, giving of our energy is going to diminish us. We're not going to have time for the other things. But God, I think you're going to put us in positions this week on purpose where you're calling us to be motivated by the needs of others and moved forward as we look and seek out opportunities to give. So I pray that for every single one of us, that at least once in the next seven days, you would lay before us a need that we can meet through the resources that you've given to us, whether financial, relational, spiritual. We would experience again what it's like when our generosity is like that pebble hitting the pond and we start to see the ripples of blessing, the ripples of goodness head out further than we ever imagined simply by responding to you. Jesus, open our eyes, open our hearts, and then open our hands as you seek to bless the world through your people with the things that you've placed under our care for your glory. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship together?